You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 96. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Today's episode is with Tal Ben-Shahar. He is an author, lecturer, and founder of Happier.tv. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Perfect, Choose the Life You Want, Being Happy, and Happier. But the real reason Tal is on today's episode is because he is my favorite professor I ever had, but I never actually took his class officially. Tal taught two of Harvard's largest classes ever, including positive psychology, which at the time when I was in school at the University of Michigan, I believe as a junior, that was when he was teaching positive psychology in his other class as well. I found out about it because he was all over the media and getting a lot of attention for this class and how many people were joining and changing their lives because of it at Harvard. And I figured it didn't just need to apply to Harvard students alone. So I found a way to receive his lectures online and kind of follow along with the class, though I didn't do the reading assignments or homework. It was kind of the best class ever because I just got to enjoy the lectures themselves. It was amazing. It made a huge impact on my life. And I truly see him as one of the teachers that has profoundly impacted the work that I do today. So it is a huge honor for me to ask Tal to come on the show. And also more exciting that he said, yes, this episode covers a lot of ground. We're going to talk about technology and how it's affecting our levels of empathy and happiness. We're going to talk about positive psychology and how to get ourselves to do those happier habits that really do make a difference and push the needle when it comes to improving our well-being that we often don't actually implement. Let's go to the show. Tal, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jess. Great to be here. It is an honor to have you here as what I like to say is my favorite professor that I didn't take his class officially. I loved your class at Harvard, though I was at Michigan at the time, and I'm so excited to share you with my listeners. So let's start with your background. Tell us how you got to where you are. I became interested in the whole topic of positive psychology, which is the science of happiness, because of my own unhappiness. I first thought about this when I was an undergraduate at Harvard doing computer science and doing very well academically and doing well in sports. I played squash. Um, I did quite well socially, but I was very unhappy. And it didn't make sense to me because, you know, when I looked at my life from the outside, things looked great. But from the inside, it certainly didn't feel that way. And I remember waking up one very cold Boston morning and going to my academic advisor and telling her that I'm switching course. She said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science and moving over to philosophy and psychology. And that's where uh, my love affair with these two subjects began. And why positive psychology specifically? Positive psychology focuses on life flourishing. It focuses on how we can lead more fulfilled, uh, happier lives. It doesn't just focus on, you know, how can we deal with uh, depression or anxiety, which are, of course, important. But even if we're not depressed or we're not anxious, it doesn't mean we're happy. Uh, it doesn't mean we're fulfilling our potential for a sense of meaning and purpose in life or for healthy and good relationships. You know, the analogy that I often use is I may have indigestion, but getting rid of indigestion doesn't make me enjoy good food. <laughs> it's a necessary condition, but it's not enough. Positive psychology is about you know, enjoying uh, metaphorically good food or the good life. And how did you actually study that as a student and in your work later? 
I went back to the ancients and, you know, looked at philosophers like Aristotle and Plato and Confucius and Lao Tzu. And then I studied modern psychology, conventional psychology, and from 1998, what became known as positive psychology. One of my favorite books of all time is The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. In there, he describes the difference between the personality ethic and the character ethic from the ancients that you studied and self-development, if you will, and how they focus on the character of the person and even into the founding fathers. But in the industrial age, he talks about how the personality ethic became popular in the self-help or personal development world. What is your thought on that, given what you've studied through positive psychology? Yeah, so I'm completely aligned with Stephen Covey. What he talks about is essentially what self-help was about originally. So there was a lovely book published in 1859 called Self-Help. Oh, really? There is a book? Yeah, and the, the author's name, perfectly adequate, is Samuel Smiles. And he writes about, you know, what is self-help? It's about persistence and hard work and slow, gradual change. His approach became obsolete at the beginning of the 20th century when people started to look for quick fixes. So rather than character change, which takes time and effort, they looked for the uh, you know, microwave approach to changing their lives. And unfortunately, that mostly doesn't work. Yeah, I think that the concept of life hacking, not to say that if anyone's into that, that that's a bad thing. But what is your take on those hacks or those trying to get there quicker, faster, easier? To try to do it is one thing. To succeed in doing it is quite another. Unfortunately, there's a lot of misunderstanding and false hope as a result of many of the messages that we see in the self-help or in New Age books. For example, telling you, well, all you need to do is really believe that you can do it and then you'll be able to do it. No, you know, of course it's important to believe in ourselves. Self-confidence and self-esteem are important, but that's not the whole story. It's just only a part of the equation. The rest of the equation is very much about what Stephen Covey and Samuel Smiles and others talk about, the real deep character change. And that means applying ourselves and working and investing in the things that are important to us. And how does positive psychology connect to that? Are there any practices that positive psychology has found to be effective to help you with your character in this way? Yeah, so the first thing, and, and the emphasis has to be on practices. It's not like, okay, so you can hear a lecture or even take a semester-long course and be transformed as a result. You'll hear interesting ideas and perhaps interesting studies and so on, but that's not enough to bring about the change. What's necessary is the practice and the regular ongoing practice. Going back to the ancients, the father of Western philosophy was Socrates, who was Plato's teacher. And Socrates once said that to know the good is to do the good. In other words, if we know what is good for us, if we truly understand it, then, then we'll also do it. Unfortunately, Socrates was wrong. <laughs> he was right on many accounts, but here he was blatantly wrong. Because if just knowing the good meant we would do the good, then we would all be uh, eating healthfully all the time. We would always be generous and benevolent and kind and calm with other people, and, and we're not. So just knowing the good is not enough to do the good. The key here is repetition. It's ritualization. It's taking a practice and repeating it over and over again. For example, regular physical exercise. The connection between mind and body is being established more and more tightly, literally by the day, where you see research showing that it's not just healthy physically to exercise on a regular basis. It actually uh, strengthens our psychological immune system. It actually makes us a lot happier, as well as more creative and calmer. 
So regular physical exercise, regularly expressing gratitude. So, you know, what Oprah told us back in 1999 or even a little bit before that, she's right on. Expressing gratitude on a regular basis doesn't just make us happier and healthier. It also makes us better people. Keeping a journal on a regular basis or having someone to talk to on a regular basis about things that may not be going well in our lives, that's invaluable in terms of contributing to our happiness. And firstly, number one predictor of well-being is quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. This is important to say today. It wasn't as important to say that 50 years ago because this is what people did. They spent time with family and friends. Today, in our modern or postmodern world, we're doing a lot less of it. We're spending much more time in front of a screen rather than in front of uh, our friends. Think about the young children that are being born today, and they're using the screens from the beginning of their lives. Obviously, we've heard that the caveman idea of our brains have not changed very much, but the technology has changed rapidly, and so our brains have not caught up, is something that all of us that are older are used to struggling with. But for those that are born now and are used to having that much screen time, do you think that they're going to adjust and be just as happy because they're just going to be knowing that as their reality? Or do you think they're going to be less happy having that much screen time and never knowing otherwise? We actually have some research on that showing that the more screen time people have, the less happy they are. And what moderates the effect is the uh, levels of loneliness. So some screen is great. You know, meeting friends or, or people we haven't seen for many years on Facebook and through that initiating a real meeting is terrific. Being in touch on email, using it as a work tool, fantastic. But when we spend most of our waking hours in front of the screen with the virtual friends, that's just no substitute for the real interaction. And we pay a very high price psychologically, emotionally, we pay a very high price for it. What do you think will happen to the generations that come after this that are just used to that reality? The question is, unfortunately, no longer what will happen, but what is happening. Uh, so what is happening to people are two main things. One, levels of happiness are going down as a result of the fact that they're not interacting face-to-face. But the second thing, which is no less troubling, is levels of empathy are going down. We develop empathy toward other people when we interact with them directly. Empathy is like a language. We learn language by being immersed in the environment that speaks that language. We learn empathy by being immersed with other people. And if we don't have that face-to-face interaction on a regular basis, we have much less of it. Our empathic inclinations are not realized, are not made real. And of course, empathy is the foundation of morality, is the foundation of, of a healthy society. So that is very troubling. Uh, I would say, you know, top priority for parents and schools, get people to interact face-to-face a lot more. That's powerful. So one of the things you just shared before was about the practices like gratitude, exercise, meditation, all of those things we've heard a million times before. And in my class, Life with Intention Online, I talk to people about their values and the actions they'd like to take based on them. But one of the steps we talk about is step number three, which is overcoming the resistance. I always say we have the intuition telling us and connecting us to what's true and peaceful and real. And then there's the ego that's trying to distract us. And the quick fix approach is very a shiny penny to the ego. So the ego is going to want to stay stuck in whatever habits that may not be serving us or may not be aligned with our values in those ways to do those actions you said, the repetition that's really going to help us. 
Do you have any, I call them ladders, <laughs> to help us climb over the wall? Not to say that we're never going to experience the resistance towards doing those actions on a regular basis, but do you have any tools or effective ladders people can use to overcome the resistance they might face to those things you just shared? Because we've heard it a million times. It doesn't mean that we're doing it. Right. So the main thing to get ourselves to do something is to do something. In other words, it's very often about faking it till we make it. It's about doing it, repeating it. And initially, it's difficult, of course, but over time, it gets easier. What can help us do it is that we take up one or two things at a time. So there's a wonderful book by Jim Lohr and Tony Schwartz called The Powerful Engagement. And in it, they talk about how we can uh, bring about real change into our lives. And one of the most important tips there, and again, it's backed by a lot of research, is that if we want to bring about change in our lives, we shouldn't try to bring about radical change in numerous areas. Just focus on one. One area, one change, and introduce it for 30 days, you know, repeat that until it becomes more of a ritual. You know, we don't need a lot of uh, motivation to brush our teeth every day. We just do it automatically because it's ritualized. But to get something ritualized, uh, we need to first do it. I often make the distinction between New Year's resolutions and brushing our teeth. Everyone brushes their teeth. Very few people actually fulfill their New Year's resolutions. Why? Because we make a list of five or ten things that we want to do and we end up doing nothing. So just come up with one thing. Say, I'm going to start a meditation practice and do it for the next month or two or three months. Focus just on that when it comes to introducing change in your lives. Once you feel that that is part of your life, then you can go on to the next change, the next ritual. The slower is better. I love that. And actually, it's kind of an interesting segue to another topic I wanted to share and touch on with you. It's about perfectionism. A lot of my listeners have resonated with the theme of perfectionism, especially in season one, with a lot of different guests that have brought up their own struggles with it. So someone might say, I'm going to do this habit, and I'm going to try to make it like brushing my teeth. I'm going to try to do it perfectly. And then they kind of beat themselves up. You have literally written a book <laughs> on the pursuit of perfect. What's your thought on perfect? And how does it compare to optimal? You know, the, the saying that the perfect is often the enemy of the good is correct. Because what, what often happens, the perfectionist is about the all or nothing approach. So either I change my life radically or I don't do anything at all. If I want to live a healthier lifestyle, a perfectionist would say, well, that means that I have to eat you know, healthy food, that I have to exercise on a regular basis. Now, as soon as somehow the perfectionist doesn't do it, you know, for example, one day they eat more than they wanted to, or they miss out on the exercise, it's all or nothing. So they stop doing anything. That prevents them from bringing about the desired change. The same, by the way, happens in relationships. Perfectionism is a, a real barrier to growth within relationships because either we're perfect together or we shouldn't even be together. And therefore, the first fight, the first conflict comes and it inevitably comes in every relationship. And the conclusion immediately, oh, so we're not meant to be together. All or nothing. It's detrimental in just about every area in our lives. So, you know, one of the things that I do in my book on the pursuit of perfect is um, I trace the impact of it on relationships, on our work, on raising children, and on our day-to-day -day happiness. I find it really interesting, the relationship thing that you just shared, because I'm reading Mindsets by Carol Dweck right now. Have you read that one, The Growth Mindset versus Fixed Mindset? Yeah, it's one of the books that I teach and one of the most important books, especially, I would say, on child rearing and education. Absolutely. I definitely was raised on the fixed mindset, I believe, at the University of Michigan Business School because it was graded on a curve. 
And I guess I did mentally check out from trying to compete with the students that were very, very talented in quantitative things. Basically, I was like graded against my weaknesses rather than my strengths. And it wasn't like I could even with the curve grading system succeed against myself. I was trying to succeed against my peers because it didn't matter what I earned. The grade was actually determined by what my peers earned. And I found it as a losing battle. So I actually kind of had to question myself and go, did I have a fixed mindset or was I set up to fail by the actual system that's supposed to help you get better and grow and learn? One of the things about the fixed and growth mindset is that we enter it as a result of feedback that we receive from our environment. And very often it comes from the best of intentions. So when parents tell their children, oh, you're so smart, you're so intelligent, or you're so beautiful, they do it with the best of intentions because they want to strengthen their kids' self-esteem. They want them to feel good, not realizing that actually it does a lot more harm than good. It's much better to focus on a child's or a student's effort rather than intelligence if we want to create a growth mindset. Because if someone tells me I'm smart, there's nothing I can do with that. If someone tells me I work hard and I put a lot of effort, well, this is something that's under my control. Sometimes people from the show that are artists or creatives will do something beautiful with a quote they hear on the show. And I want to thank them and give them a compliment, basically, that says how wonderful I think what they created was. And I've actually thought about this fixed and growth mindset. The societally appropriate thing to say in many cases is you are so talented. Saying that is ultimately just reinforcing almost a fixed mindset. And I don't want to assume that it took them a long time to make it and say, oh, that looks like it took you so long to do. So I've always kind of struggled with that. And I think what you just said is it looks like I can tell how much effort and care you put into this might be my way around that compliment. Yeah, or I can just imagine how many years it takes to reach this kind of mastery. Oh, I love that. What about for when you want to give someone a compliment physically, if you want to tell them that they're beautiful. I don't know. That's an interesting one I sometimes find too. I I thought about that today at an email. One of the pictures, the little thumbnails of the person was stunning. And I wanted to compliment her on her looks. And I was like, why am I complimenting her? Right. So when it comes to looks, it is somewhat tricky because, you know, I want to tell, you know, my kids, oh, you know, you're beautiful and and you're amazing. And, and, And I think that's fine as long as we also focus on the characteristics and the traits that they can focus on. So their self-identity shouldn't be based on the fact that they're beautiful. Their self-identity should be based on the fact that they have control over it. They can make themselves, they can work hard. Being kind, for example, you know, that's something that they have control over. So this is where we need to put much more focus on than on the talent, beauty, uh, intelligence. I'm actually working on a book right now about people's identity and their self-worth being tied to their work. I'm struggling with this in my own life of this, okay, so you're such a hard worker and you get approval from that, then is everyone going to be pushing themselves to these limits, especially in the US? I see it maybe more than in Europe, but the work-life balance being so out of whack in many cases or our worth being tied to our work. If we look at ourselves as smart or as hard workers, we can end up trying to validate ourselves from that one specific spectrum. What's your thought on that? So what I would say here, and this is drawing on the terrific work by Brian Little, who was my mentor and teacher, and what Brian Little talks about is essentially diversifying our portfolio. So if we can get our self-worth to rest on different pillars, so yeah, one of them may be a hard work, and that's great. I'm very much for the, you know, the Protestant ethics. I think it's great. And how about also on spending quality time with our family? And how about also on um, our ability to give and to be kind 
So if there can be many um, traits, characteristics, elements of the good life, it's a lot healthier. Now, having said that, one of the dangers is that we want to be perfect in each. The perfect parent, the perfect worker, the perfect student. And that's problematic. And we need to shift our mindset. Just as you talk about shifting our mindset from a fixed to a growth mindset, I think one of the most important things to do is to shift our mindset from the perfect to the good. Or as uh, Donald Winnicott, the psychologist, talked about the good enough. So how can I be a good enough parent? How can I be a good enough writer? How can I be a good enough partner? Not perfect, but good enough. And you know, good enough is good enough. I believe you called it optimal, correct, in the book? Yes. In the book, I called it optimal rather than, than perfect. Because optimal is the best possible given the constraints of reality. Is there any area you've recently adjusted to be optimal that maybe was out of balance? Yeah, um, I don't know if it was that recent, but um, ever since I had kids, uh, work. You know, I don't spend as many hours at work as I did when I was a bachelor or before we had kids. And I realized I cannot put as many hours at work if I also want to be an involved parent. On a similar token, I cannot be a parent who homeschools his children if I want to maintain a career because, you know, I am hardworking and ambitious. So I moved to good enough. And instead of constant frustration that I experienced before, you know, I'm not putting as much time as I want in my work. I'm not putting as much time as I want with my kids. Uh, Rather than frustration, there's a lot more satisfaction. Where does that come from, the satisfaction? It comes from the fact that I do have a, somewhat of a balance, that I, that I do spend quality time with my family. And when I spend time with my family, I'm with my family. You know, my phone is off, my computer is off, I'm there listening or dancing or playing ball. When I'm at work, I'm at work, you know, fully focused there. When we try and do everything, we often try and do it at the same time and we experience frustration. Whereas this mindful focus on one activity at a time, that goes a long way, both in terms of the quality of the work that we do, the quality of time that we experience, and also in terms of both our happiness and our performance. Yeah, I'm just even thinking, aside from even relationships for me at work, I think I'd be much more effective. And I have always been working on this in my own life is trying to leave the social media out of the working hours, but it is always this huge siren calling to me (laughs) to go connect or engage. Or I could say that's work because it's a part of what I do for a living, but really it's distracting me from the other work I have to get done. And I could even see from my own (laughs) career right there, that would be helpful if I could get better at that as well. I like the metaphor of the sirens because what you need to do is tie yourself to the mast, you know, metaphorically speaking, which could mean literally disconnecting the ethernet or disconnecting the computer for the time that you need to do other things. And there's a lot of value to that. There's a lovely research by Leslie Perlow from Harvard Business School. She has a book called uh, Sleeping With Your Smartphone and talks about how important it is to set time aside and to disconnect so that we can connect. What doubts or resistance are you facing in your life? Is there any area that you're working on right now in your own life? My biggest challenge now, and I must say it's not new because it's something that as a you know, recovering perfectionist, I'm struggling with for years, and that is taking on too much. It's difficult for me to say no, not because it's difficult for me to, to say the word no, but because I don't want to miss out. You know, so I'm taking on this and that and new projects and you know, it's all exciting, but I feel that sometimes I'm overdoing it. So working on it, work in progress. 
looking forward to working on it for the next uh, 50 years. <laughs> exactly. I can totally relate to it, what you're sharing. Have you read Essentialism? I haven't. Uh, that's an interesting one. If you're struggling with the narrowing down, it's a really great read. Also, The One Thing. Have you read that one as well? No. No, that's a good one too. Jess, you're, you're, you're adding more books to my, to my list. This is not what I was asking for. I'm asking for the opposite. <laughs> okay, well, I would say that you could read even just the first quarter of Essentialism and get that gist. Get the essentials. Actually, I have a podcast for you. You can listen to the author on the show for the one thing, but it's really powerful. It really helped me buy into the philosophy and shake off this urge to want to take on too much. So last but not least, what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? Take a few deep breaths every day, exercise regularly, spend time with people you love, appreciate, take time to appreciate what you have. And give yourself the permission to be human. In other words, allow yourselves to experience uh, painful emotions because they're also natural. There are ups and downs throughout life. Accept that, embrace that. Lovely. Tal, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's an honor to be able to speak with you instead of just watching you on a dorm room computer. <laughs> thank you very much, Jess. And there you have it. Tal, thank you so much for coming on the show. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to find Tall in social media, the best place to go is Facebook. He's at Tall Ben Shahar. And of course, you can find him on his website as well, happier.tv. And as for myself, you can find me on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter as Jess. C is in Caramel Apple Lively. And before I share who's coming on next week's episode, I'm so excited to talk about FreshBooks.com, today's episode sponsor. FreshBooks is a service I have been using for my bookkeeping since January 2012, and I'm so proud to share them with you here on The Lively Show because I freaking love this software. If you have ever felt frustrated by your software for bookkeeping, you feel like you're spending too much time doing it, or it just feels unintuitive and confusing and kind of like a drag, I highly, highly recommend you go check out FreshBooks. They have a free 30-day trial, which you can get by going over to freshbooks.com lively. Every month I go see my mentor, Mitch, and I've been seeing him for so many years, and he always wants to know, how is the business doing? All I have to do now is go into FreshBooks, either on my phone or my computer with him or before I go into the meeting with him and just print out the profit and loss and the balance sheet or anything that we might wanna look at and it's automatically reported. So it makes my meetings with my mentor so much clearer and simpler. We can really see where the business is at in this really great way that before, when I had to do everything manually or when I would use other programs that I did not enjoy, that was not the case. I was always guesstimating what I had earned up to that point in the year or in that month, but now it makes it super simple. So like I said, go check it out at freshbooks.com lively. I truly believe this is the best software out there, at least for myself, and I really encourage you to give it a try. And now for a sneak peek on next week's episode. Next week, we are speaking with Ashley Lemieux of theshineproject.com. She is going to tell us and document the journey that she has been on to start her business, which is all about helping to employ and empower inner city high schoolers who may not have all of the advantages to help them earn money, earn skills, and then eventually give scholarships to help them go to college as well. She's also going to talk about the balance she's had to create with her children and her family, negotiating the boundaries and all of those wonderful topics that are so relevant to so many of us, whether we have a business or not. So until then, may something wonderful happen to you today. 